Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. I know as someone who has kids, there's nothing more stressful than having multiple bags flopping around in the airport. So we are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on and time to get going. Welcome, I'm Laura Lee Binstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Psychedelics have been a big part of my healing, and I'm a huge advocate for it as a means of personal growth. As a teen, I did use psychedelics recreationally, and looking back, it really opened my mind to things and ideas I should have explored more, which is why when I found out about its healing properties for self-reflection and trauma, I knew that it was what I needed to heal my trauma. I don't encourage the use of psychedelics unless in proper settings with intentions of integrating the experience with a group, coach, or therapist. My guest today, Doug Cartwright, author of Holy Shit, We Are Alive, which explores Doug's life as a 20-something ex-Mormon and ex-millionaire who lived an unfulfilled existence until he found purpose through psychedelic healing. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, super fun to be on here. Well, first of all, an ex-Mormon, ex-millionaire, what was life like just growing up? Yeah, so I was raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is has a really strong Mormon population. And I grew up on, you know, an upper middle class neighborhood where everyone was white and everyone was Mormon and everyone was Republican. And um you kind of were just told what to do and like how to live. And you're kind of the map, the roadmap was laid out for you. And I had a really great childhood. I had amazing friends and strong community, but there was like no diversity. And it was kind of like, this is what you're supposed to do. Now go do it. And I kind of just followed the rules of what I was supposed to do. And so um, growing up Mormon, um, it's very strict, kind of lifestyle in a sense of, you know, you're supposed to abstain from caffeine and alcohol and sex and all of these things. And, you know, in, in the Mormon world, the, the beliefs you're taught, you're taught as a kid, you know, why you're here, like what happened before you were a human, the reason you're a human. And if you obey the, the rules of God while you're a human, then after you die, you go to, a, you know, there, in Mormonism, there's three heavens. You go to the highest heaven where you get to live in for eternity with God's presence. So it's like all of the tough questions were answered for you. And so you never were taught to think or reason for your own. And it was like, okay, go to school, get good grades. And then in the Mormon uh, religion, there's this coming of age ritual where it's like, hey, you go on a mission, a service mission. So I don't know if you've seen like the book of Mormon musical or whatnot, but it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you go and do your service mission. And then after that, you um, 
finish college and then you get married and then you have babies and you get a good job and then you get the white picket fence and you live happily ever after. And that's kind of like your whole life's laid out for you. You don't really ever question it. And so uh, growing up, I was quite oblivious to the world as a whole. And I was kind of just going along the, my path, doing what I was supposed to do. Um, and I was, I was really happy and, you know, and, you know, growing up, especially through junior high and high school, but it wasn't until after my mission and after in college where I started to question things because I realized things just weren't, you know, in alignment or fulfilling. Yeah, I know. I read in your book, in the beginning of your book, you talk about in the mission, you were actually sent home. Yeah. And that kind of got you questioning a lot of things. Yeah, that was the first time in my life because, you know, in high school, I was captain of the football team. I was student body vice president. So I was kind of like doing a really good job of doing the things I was supposed to do that I was told to do. And I felt like I was an upstanding, you know, community member and citizen. And um, the first time I felt like I didn't belong was before you go on your service mission for two years there's a, a standard of living you're supposed to live up to. And that's, you know, no girls, no sex, no pornography, no, you know, living a really chaste life. And before I left, I had a girlfriend um, and it was maybe two days before I was leaving to New Zealand. I got my mission called to New Zealand, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I went to go like, I had like the big farewell party. I spoke in church. Everyone came over for like a luncheon and like I had my bags packed. I was out, wasn't in school. So it was like, I'm packed up, ready to go to get commit the next two years of my life. And after I had like my big goodbye party, I went to say goodbye to my girlfriend at the time for the next two years. And we were intimate and we broke some of the rules that you're supposed to live by. And I remember being like, oh shit, like I can't come clean now. Like I've already said my goodbyes. I've already like have my plane ticket. Like I can't go back and say, hey, I broke some of the rules. And so I kind of swept it under the rug and pretended like it didn't happen. And then nine months into my mission, the guilt and the shame of, you know, being unworthy in God's eyes just continue to build and build and build until finally I confessed. And when I confessed, when I was in New Zealand, I was, like I said, I was nine months into my mission. They actually sent me home. And in the Mormon world, when you get home from your mission, there's a lot of shame and guilt and there's, you know, the neighborhood is talking and everyone knows you're home early. And that was the first time in my life where it was like, oh, maybe I'm not this incredible stand-up citizen in my community. And that was the first time I felt like I was like an outcast. And so that was really a really big turning point in my life because it was like, oh, wait, do I really belong here? Because I don't feel that way. Mm. You also talked about then you got into a job that you were really good at. Yeah. Um, extremely successful, made a lot of money. Still, did did the community come back and say, oh, well, at least he's, he's, he's making the money and doing the right things now? Well, that was, that was the idea. So, you know, right when I get home from my mission, you know, within a year or two, I find this opportunity, a sales job with uncapped commissions. And I remember being like 19, 20 years old at the time thinking like, wait, I can get paid on production versus my time. And that was also a really big turning point. Cause it was like, oh, wow, I can, if I just go work harder than everyone else and figure out this skill set, I can make a ton of money. And I wasn't consciously thinking about this, but subconsciously my thought pattern was, oh, if I go make a bunch of money, I know society rewards that and looks up upon that. So maybe that's how I can earn my trust and respect with my community. If I can go make a ton of money 
and prove to all these people where I, cause I felt so embarrassed and sound for my mission at outcast. Maybe I can earn my way back in. So, and, ex- and around the same time, um, my dad got diagnosed with cancer and dealing with that was really intense. And about a year after he got diagnosed, he ended up passing away from colon cancer. And so it was this time in my life where it's like, I just got sent home, sent home from my mission. My dad just died, you know, and I'm feeling the pain. I'm feeling the trauma. I'm feeling the loss. And, and I don't know how to handle it. And I remember distinctly, there was a moment, you know, a night before my dad passed away and I was sitting at the edge of the stairs outside of his room with my mom. And she put her arm around my shoulder to like console me. And I remember feeling this immense amount of grief and sadness and frustration and terror and confusion, like coming up, like this emotion just coming out. I started sobbing uncontrollably at the stairs uh, for about three seconds. And then I realized like, oh, I need to be the tough guy. Like as men, we're supposed to be strong and tough, not show our emotions. So I just cut it off and I just pushed all of this emotion back inside and didn't really deal with the loss of my dad because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to deal with my emotion. And I'm also dealing with the shame of getting home for my mission. So it's like, oh, if I can go make money, right, that'll solve the problem. Like, and that was a really good way to distract me too. It's like, okay, I don't have to deal with my dad dying. And I'm just going to go bury my head in the sand and try and figure out how to be the best salesman and learn the skill set and make a ton of money. Because I feel like if I can make a ton of money, then that'll solve all of my problems. And so you know, the next six or seven years of my life were just completely laser sharp, focused, obsessive, trying to make as much money as possible. And I did a pretty dang good job out of it. Uh, And I made a ton of money in my early twenties, trying to solve an internal problem. But obviously, you know, money isn't going to solve an internal problem. And I learned that the hard way. Wow. Your first chapter is called, We Shouldn't Even Be Alive. Yeah. Um, can you tell our listeners why, why you started the book and, yeah. you know, why you don't think we should be alive? Yeah. So what happened after that, you know, kind of going, going along in a timeline here is I've, I've reached this pinnacle um, where I, 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 I call it in my book, the success void, right? So I'm at this point in my life where I have I wasn't making like crazy. I wasn't like making hundreds of millions of dollars, but I was, you know, I was making, you know, small, you know, I've made, you know, by the time I was 27, I'd made like 3 million bucks. You know, by the time I was 24, I was a millionaire. And um, on paper, my life to look really successful. Like if I were to give you a resume, resume of my life, Lori Lee would have been like, oh, this guy's successful. He has a nice job and a car and dating pretty girls and yada, 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 all these things. But I had like this void. And so at 27, I decided like, I'm going to start looking in different directions. And so we'll loop back through this, but to answer your question on, we shouldn't be alive. I had a psychedelic experience when I was 27, my first one, and it just blew the doors off of everything. Like my entire life literally changed in one day. And still to this day, my life has never been the same. Like it's completely transformed everything. And we can dive into that. But what happened after that experience was, I felt like I was like reborn in a sense. And the questions I had, I was like, wait, what is going on? Like we are on this rock orbiting this star in the middle of nowhere. And like, what in the actual hell is going on? So I turned to science books. So I started reading a ton of 
know, if you can see on my bookshelf here, I have a ton of like astrophysics books and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan. And as I like dive into the mysteries of the universe, I was perplexed at how insane it was that we even have this experience because the probability of any of this even happening the way it did is like so minuscule. And when I really started to embrace this deep cosmic perspective of life, it gave me a really deep sense of gratitude, you know, because everything needed to happen exactly the way it did. And the universe is 13.8 billion years old and all of the natural causes and effects of, you know, these supernovas and these planets being created is so insane that, you know, the reason I started my book with, you know, we shouldn't even be alive is I really want the listeners to get, feel the cosmic perspective, because when you, when you zoom out so big, it makes your problem seem so minuscule and it allows you to move through with kind of a deeper sense of gratitude for your life. And that's, that's kind of why I started the book that way. Yeah. I noticed in the beginning of the book, it was a lot of science, a lot of, yeah. and it was really fascinating. And you know, you, you are right. When you really think of how, how insignificant we are in the big scheme of the world and the universe, it, it really puts things in perspective. Um, when you turned to psychedelics at the age of 27, was it for, to heal yourself? Was it just your friends were like, oh, hey, let's do this. And what, what, what psychedelic did you use? Yeah. So that journey is really weird. So, you know, before my psychedelic experience, there were, this is probably fall 2016. I've left, I'm not resonating with the Mormon church. I'm really feeling the success void of my job where I was like feeling really stuck. I was making good money, but felt really stuck. I hadn't really dealt with the death of my father. And I'm kind of in this really weird, muddy, confused. I was just a lost soul. And a bunch of weird things started happening. Uh, my twin sister, who um, is deeper on the spiritual path than I was, who had worked with psychedelics before, you know, she's yoga certified, meditation teacher and whatnot. And she introduced me to some books. You know, first one was A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And you are a badass by Jensen Sarah. So those two books kind of really opened up my mind to like this, you know, cosmic spiritual path. And I started to dabble into yoga and really started enjoying yoga and had a couple of experiences in yoga that I share in the book in more detail that were really like, I was getting so deep in these practices. My, I, I remember thinking, like, oh my gosh, there's a door inside my mind that I didn't know was, that was there. And I started to like, kind of like, you know, jiggle the handle a little bit. I'm like, what's, what's in this door here? Like, I know there's another part that I've never even seen before. And where everything took a, a quick change was in late May of 2017, I came across this book called Stealing Fire. And the, the premise of the book of Stealing Fire is all about how to get into flow state. Mm -hmm. So flow state can be so many different things. So whether if you're a musician or an artist or a surfer or an athlete, and it's just when you're in the zone and everything's coming really natural to you and you feel like you're not even trying, it's almost like something bigger than you kind of takes over. And it's where you produce really beautiful work. And so I find this book in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, cool. This is, I would love to get more on flow state in my sales shop so I can make more money. So I pick up this book and then halfway through the book, in the book, they talk about psychedelic compounds. And at this point in my life, I'm really still kind of have like my Mormon programming in me. And so I'm thinking like, we've, I've always been taught that every drug is 
meth or heroin. And if you do it one time, you'll be addicted, then you'll become homeless and then you'll die. So it's like, there's this big blank on drugs. And, and Sling Fire was the first book I read where it really broke down the different compounds. And in the book, they talk about um, MDMA, um, how that's used with PTSD, especially with war vets, psilocybin mushrooms, um, LSD, and then talk about DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. And I'm reading this and my f- jaw is like on the floor. I'm like, what? Like, this is insane. And I'll never forget, you know, because in this point in my life, I'm, I'm trying to be like this entrepreneur. And there's a quote from Steve Jobs where he says, you know, doing LSD was one of the most profound experiences of my entire life. And I'm like, here is the ultimate entrepreneur, like someone who literally changed the way we live as humans with the technology he brought to the world. He's most, he's looked upon, like he's inspiring. He's helped thousands and thousands of people. Like, and here he is talking about the positive effects of psychedelic compounds. And I remember thinking like, there's something here. Like there's something going on here. And I remember feeling it like deep in my core, like this pull to this, this, this medicine space. And per the universe, two weeks later, Um, I'm at a party and I've never been offered hard drugs other than marijuana in my life, you know, or, or psychedelic compounds. And I'm at this cabin party and my buddy's like, Hey Doug, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. It's a friend I hadn't connected. He's like, I have some MDMA here. And I'm like, no shit. Like I literally (laughs) like the universe. (laughs) Yeah. Literally it was the universe. I'm like, I literally just read about this. And I remember feeling like I have to try this. Like I have to try this. And so I took this MDMA pill and, and I'm sure, I don't know if you've done MDMA, but right. My first, I'm at a, I'm in a party setting and I take it. I'm nervous as hell. I'm like sweating. Like what's going to happen? 45 minutes. It kicks in and I'm like, Oh, this is great. Like, I'm so happy. I love everyone. The music sounds incredible. Like to my girlfriend, not, not like a girl space friend, a girl that was there. I'm like, Hey, rub my arm. That feels really nice. You know, just like I'm rolling. Right. And my friend's like, hey, come into the bedroom. We'll turn off the lights. We have like this laser show thing. We'll show you. You'll love it, you know, with the tracers. And so I'm fully rolling. But I remember as I'm rolling, I remember thinking like, oh, this is cool. And I feel like more empathetic. But like this isn't like this spiritual life-changing experience. Right. This wasn't what I read. And, you know, I'm probably an hour and a half into this. I'm like, I'm definitely in it. Like I'm definitely having experience. And then everyone leaves that bedroom and like someone comes in and turns on the light, kind of throws the vibe off because we're at a party and everyone leaves. And I remember I'm the last one and I'm, I'm laying down on the hardwood floor and I have my hands behind my head. And I remember thinking like, there's another level to this. Like there's, there's deeper, there's something a little bit deeper here. And so I go to stand up to leave, to walk out of the bedroom. And as you'll read in the book, I have like this, Oh shit moment. Like I need help. And it was terrifying. I need help right now. And I don't know if you've ever seen Get Out, the movie Get Out, Mm -hmm. where he's in the sunken place where he's like frozen. Mm -hmm. I was in the sunken place and I froze in my body. And I like remember feeling like completely disassociated from my life. And I remember seeing like all these memories flashing by in front of my my eyes. I'm like, oh, my life is flashing for my eyes. Oh shit, I've died. I have died. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I have to call my mom and tell her that I took drugs at a party and died. 
And it was like <laughs> this, fro- it was the worst. I don't know how long it was, maybe a couple of seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know, but it was terrifying. And then all of a sudden it was like, Whoa! and I was like back in my body. And there was like this ringing in my ears. And I remember looking at my hands and they looked really different. I remember being like, what is going on? And I opened up the bedroom door to go in like the main kitchen area of the party. And there's no way I can describe it. There's no words, but the best English human words I can use was I got through the veil and I was in another dimension, like the spirit world, like the, the, and it's so, you know, I wasn't hallucinating. It wasn't like I had my eyes closed and I was hallucinating. It was, I was literally seeing the dimension on top of this dimension. And it was like, everything was in super high death. Like it's the incredible, the amount of sharpness and detail. And I could see geometric patterns in the air, like energy floating through the air. And I could look, and by the way, I had done no, at this point in my life, I had done zero studies in Eastern philosophy. And I'm looking at people and I can see like this light, these balls of light system going up through them. And like this breath of like, it was an aura, obviously. I don't know what the word was for, but I could see people's like auras breathing and there were different colors and, and intensity and brightness. And I just knew everything about people when I saw them with no judgment. Mm. And so like, for example, I saw one of my good friends there and I could see how hard his divorce had bit on it. And I was like, oh, but the, but it's interesting because it wasn't empathetic. It was like, his divorce has been hard, period. But what's interesting because MDMA is an empathetic drug because normally it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you're divorced tomorrow, but I didn't feel that. And then I go outside onto the, the patio because we're this beautiful cabin and I see the earth's soul breathing. And I'm like, oh, mother earth. It's an actual living entity. Like it's a, it's a thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I never got that. Like, how do I not get it? And so I'm just piercing like the depth of reality. And then all of a sudden I'm back inside and I, this beam of light socks me on the top of the head and it's the love of the creator. And at this point in my life, I wasn't sure if there was a God or whatnot. And I feel the immense love of the creator. And I remember feeling a, I knew I didn't have to earn it. It wasn't like, Hey, let me see. Let me look at your checklist of your life and what you've done. And if you've done enough, then I'll give you my love. It was not, that was like, it doesn't matter what you've done. If you've done the most terrible, ruthless things in the world, you still have access to my infinite love. And I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I am the most beloved, beautiful creation in the history of the universe ever. And I embodied that and I felt it. And then I looked up and saw everyone else at the party. And I remember like, oh my gosh, everyone else is also the most beloved, beautiful creation. And I remember thinking initially was like, wait, this is what happens when you take MDMA. How come no one talks about this other dimension? Like, is this like a secret in the like psychedelic space? And then I started to realize as I was in that experience, I'm like, oh, I'm having a different experience than everyone else. Like I'm at a whole nother level than everyone else. And so I leave the party to go upstairs into a bedroom, kind of lock myself in a bedroom. And then I start to hallucinate and in that experience, and I'm not saying any of this is like, this is capital T truth. And I know the way um, this is just how I perceive my experience, which is very personalized for me. Um, and then I saw what I believe to be 
you know, what happens before we come to earth, you know, why we're on earth and what happens when we die and how there's like this eternal progression of our soul. And it was really interesting was at this point I was, I was at this point in my life, I was kind of like a douchey sales bro. That's just who I was (laughs) before. And I always thought that reincarnation was like the hippies thought that when you die, your body will be in the ground and then you become a flower. Like that's what I thought reincarnation was. And then I see in this experience that you actually get multiple human lives. And I never comprehended that before. And, you know, I'll, 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 you know, wrap up the story and I go a lot deeper in the book, but after that experience, I was like, you know, eventually I come grounded back, back to reality. And I remember thinking like, what in the actual hell is true? Like that was the most real experience I've ever had completely shattered my constructs of reality and blew it into confetti and flipped my entire world up so down, upside down so intensely. And there's so many cool synchronicities about that night too that I share in the book. But to get to the point, that experience was so profound, so unreal. And to this day, I've told a lot of people about this experience with NBMA, even including Rick Doblin, who's you know the founder of MAPS. Mm-hmm. I've told them the story. And he's like, I've never heard of anyone having an experience like that on NBMA. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I have no clue why it was so intense. But because that experience was so intense, I left me so curious about the psychedelic space that I went down this journey where eventually I ended up working with psilocybin uh, and, and more, more powerful for me. You know, I did, a, I've worked with, you know, the most powerful medicine for me is working with ayahuasca. And that's where I really dove into my trauma and healing all, you know, my trauma and which is, is really, you know, been the biggest gift in my life so far. Wow. So the ayahuasca experience. So I, you know, I, I have, I actually used MDMA for um, twice for, to heal my PTSD. I'm a Mm. childhood sexual abuse survivor. And Mm. um, that was very eye-opening for me. I felt like it needed to, it showed me what I needed to see at that moment. Mm -hmm. And it showed me some of the things that I was just grappling with. And I think that's probably what happened for you. I mean, yeah. your life was, your world was somewhat small, just given what you were told as a child, right? And growing up right. and the MDMA needed to show you that this was your world. Um, yeah, I have this piece of art I'm going to show you real quick that is remind yeah. me, reminds me of my June 10th night of like that MDMA night. And it's like, that's what happened. Yeah. That's what happened to my brain. And it's like, wow, I was so thinking small and then literally overnight doing MDMA my that happened. That's what I feel like happened to my mind. Yeah. That needed to happen. And did you try the other psychedelics with groups or with in a different setting, not necessarily at a party? I've done probably in my life, 25 psychedelic experiences. So not that much, maybe more, no more than that. I would say maybe 35, 35 psychedelic experiences. Mm -hmm. I've only done psychedelics in a recreational setting twice okay. and so it's a very it's a fair and it would say hard though is because like i went from that experience at the cabin first time ever to my next experience being six grams of mushrooms with a blindfold on and that was really intense and then my third fourth fifth and sixth experiences were an ayahuasca ceremony with a professional shaman so it's like i went really deep really fast and so because of that and i'm grateful for it but because of that it's like almost like my brain has new tracks, neuro, new neural pathways. So if mm-hmm. I take even a little bit of psilocybin or a little bit of 
any type of mind altering substance, I go really deep, really quick. So I've tried to take like a little bit of mushrooms at a party or at an experience, but because I go so deep, so quick, it, I don't, I can't enjoy the experience. Cause it's like, Hey, we're at this concert, take little mushrooms. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I was sexually abused as a kid. You know, cause I'm like dealing with this. So it's like, it doesn't make it fun. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I don't have, I, I can't, I can't really do psychedelics in, in a, in a recreational setting anymore because of the depth that was my initial entry into the space was so deep. Wow. So with the ayahuasca, you were saying, um, what was that experience like? Man, ayahuasca is, there's no words prior. It is so, so insane. It is so intense. My first night of ayahuasca was really difficult. It was really hard. Um, it's very ceremonial. It needs to be done with, you know, right set, right setting, right intention with a professional facilitator. Um, I was so incredibly lucky to have access to the circles of, that, I, that I've been able to sit in, you know, just living where I'm living, the people I've connected with, being able to get, you know, really easy entry into that space. My second night of ayahuasca was so beautiful. I had a complete full DMT breakthrough into through the matrix back to universal consciousness creation and it like reset my whole life and the beauty of ayahuasca is it's really really intense it's not for everyone um but just like i'm sure you've experienced it shows you like these deep memories in your closet or traumatic experiences that are still guiding your life that need work and, you know, example I use is in, a, in an early ayahuasca session. I remember um, the session started and I, I drank the, the tea and um, I was sexually abused as a kid when I was six mm. and it wasn't malicious. It wasn't like, you know, my crazy uncle threw me in the closet and molested me. I just had a friend who was eight, my best friend at the time who was eight and he was just curious and he, you know, would pull my pants down and things like that. And it happened a couple of times. And I remember drinking ayahuasca and I remember this memory started to come up and I remember thinking like, why am I thinking about this right now? Like I'm here to do ayahuasca. Like, why am I thinking about this random memory? I've thought about this for a long time. Then I'm like, oh, this is why you do ayahuasca. Like you're supposed to deal with this stuff. And so I leaned into it and relived these, you know, sexual experiences. And I remember thinking like, how has this affected my life? Like, why are you showing me this? And then it started to play like this reel. And what happened is when he was 16 and I was 14. He got in a car accident and died. And I remember my initial thought when I was 14, when I heard that was a sense of relief. So I'm like, oh, now no one will know our secret. Like now no one will ever know. Like this, this secret is literally going to the grave. And growing up in high school and in college, I was always really good at making platonic girl space friends. So I had a lot of girlfriends. And my guy, and I had my guy friends, of course, too, but they'd always kind of tease me being like, Doug, you have so many girlfriends. And I remember thinking like, why do I have a lot of girlfriends? And my initial thought was like, I have a twin sister. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's because when I was growing up, I was used to having like feminine energy around me and I'm comfortable with that. And then in this ayahuasca experience, it showed me that because I was sexually abused at six, I created a subconscious story that men aren't safe, especially my best friend. And so when I would meet new guy friends, in college and in high school and after, I always had really big walls up and kept them at a distance because subconsciously it's like, I don't know your intentions. 
I don't know if you're going to hurt me. And so I was able to work after that experience. I was able to work with a therapist, you know, the integration is the most important part. Mm -hmm. So integrating it with a therapist over time, I've now learned that like, oh, it's not weird or bad to have guy friends and that they're not going to hurt me. And so now it's like, oh my gosh, I have this new whole chapter of my life where I can, it's so much easier to meet male friends and like have, you know, hang out with the boys and that's totally cool and normal. And it's been such a beautiful blessing for me. And so that's, you know, one of the powers of psychedelic medicine where I never would have pieced those two pieces together from my childhood trauma to how it was still affecting me, you know, 25 years later. Yeah, you did talk a lot in your book about stories, the stories that we yeah. tell ourselves and how they affect us to this day. And and I thought that was interesting because I, I do inter, internal family systems therapy um, as yeah. a means of integration for my psychedelic experiences. And that's exactly what they talk, um, they talk about. And so it's like tracing back these certain behaviors you have to those moments where that kind of changed your life and how you look at the world. So that's, that's, that's fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about your integration? Like, how do you integrate these psychedelic yeah. experiences? So I always tell people, if you're not going to integrate your experiences, don't even do the medicine, right? right? The, the psychedelics won't heal you. The psychedelics will tell you how you need to heal. They'll give you the roadmap. You know, they'll show you what you're, what you, you don't want to look at. And so for me, I was, I took the integration really, really serious. And so I, after my psychedelic experiences, I had three therapists that I was seeing. I was doing neurofeedback. I got into a deep meditation practice, a deep yoga practice, a journaling, you know, journaling practice. And um, I was working with a spiritual guru, a psychologist, you know, and all of these things because I realized I needed help to help understand and make sense of my experiences. And so um, I don't have three therapists anymore. I always have one therapist. I think everyone should have a therapist. I always tell people if, if by the time you need a therapist, it's too late. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you should always have a therapist. And so the practices I still use to this day, the habits I try to incorporate on a daily basis are, you know, a strong movement practice, a strong uh, meditation practice. And I've really changed the way I, I eat. Um, after my psychedelic experiences, I realized that I was feeding my body garbage and that's why I felt like garbage. And so psychedelics really helped me understand to take on more of a plant-based, uh, clean eating diet. And that's really affected my whole life. And so it's just these daily habits and rituals, which, which caused me to start my new company. Um, the daily shifts, which is my company now, mm -hmm. um, was all based upon, you know, how do I have, how can I create an integration tool to keep me in alignment um, from the insights I received in my psychedelic experiences. Wow. That's incredible. How do your, how does your family, you say your sister was, it was actually into the psychedelic mm -hmm. world, correct? How, how does your family handling all of this? Yeah. So I've actually have done ceremony with two of my sisters, which is really beautiful. And, um, I'm really incredibly lucky to have such a loving, supportive family. My mother is extremely uh, obedient in her Mormon faith still to this day. And she only received it with love and happiness. And I remember, you know, while I was in like the thick of my journey, I'm like, mom, are you like nervous that like your son left the church and is now quote unquote doing drugs? And she's like, no, I trust you. I know that you're smart, but I love 
the person you've become after these experiences. Mm. She goes, I, I now know you have a relationship with God. You know, my God is very different than her God, but you know, the way, and so, but she's like, I love that you have a relationship with something bigger than you where you didn't have that before. And because of that, you know, I'm really grateful for that. So I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have a, a support system and support network. And, you know, I shared the, the stories in the book and I think the changes in behavior is proof that, you know, it's been a positive impact, not just for me, but for my family as well. For listeners and, uh, you know, who may be interested in trying psychedelics, what do you recommend? That's a difficult question to answer because it is still illegal in the United States. I got really woo woo during my journey where I got, I mean, I, t- I tried everything, you know, psychics, you know, tarot cards, intuitive readers, like ecstatic dance. Like I was doing a lot of really weird stuff just to kind of see what would work right. And there's a lot of the woo stuff that doesn't really land with me anymore. But one thing that is kind of woo woo, if that's the word you want to use, that I do believe in is that when you are ready to work with these compounds, these medicines, these plants, like they will call to you. Like you will know, like you will feel it in your soul that it's time for you to go experience, you know, whether it's working with psilocybin or ayahuasca or whatever it may be. And so when that's the case, I'm just, I've I've always believed that the medicine will come and find you. And so the only thing I actually ever do recommend, I've never been there personally, but it is legal in Costa Rica and in Peru, ayahuasca in particular. And there's a retreat center in Costa Rica called Arrhythmia. I've never personally been there myself, but I have four to five friends who I trust really, really deeply who have been there and have had absolutely incredible, beautiful, life-changing experiences there in a safe set and setting. And so for those really feeling the call to ayahuasca, the, uh, I would recommend, you know, doing some more research in particular with Rhythmia. It's funny how you say it like comes to you. Cause I felt like, I felt like I, you know, there were shows that were show, you know, I think it was like goop lab where yeah, like I, she was, I, I don't know if they were doing, it was LSD that they were talking about to heal. And I remember thinking, maybe I should do this because I did LSD recreationally as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like 17 when I did it and it really opened my eyes up. Um, I also did mushrooms probably when I was like 16. And I remember it showing me the abuse that I'd kind of buried and didn't think mm-hmm. about. And it, it got, it got scary. It was a really bad trip, but I do think that if I was with someone who knew what they were doing, someone who can integrate, who can tell me like, yeah. this is what you needed to see. Um, I think that would have been a lot better for me. And I felt like before I went into treatment, I went into treatment in Arizona. I, I, you know, the goop lab came on with this LSD. And then all of a sudden I started getting flashbacks of all the things that I, that, you know, I did when I was doing psychedelics as a you know kid. And then I was like, maybe I need to find somebody. Mm. And it, they just came to me. It, yeah, was, it just exactly. happened. And it was, so I think that is interesting that you're saying that because I think it, it'll find you that yeah. I, I've never thought about it that way until you just said that. Cool. I love hearing that. Cause I think about my, my story and how I can be. And I, I look back at it now from my point of view now, I'm like, Oh, like ayahuasca came and got me. <laughs> like it literally came and got me yeah. and everything kind of just happened. It just fell into place the right time at the right place and the right people in the right situation. And just like, it kind of just fell into my lap. And yeah. so if you're in a situation where you feel like you're ready and 
call that in and you'll be shocked. And then how I've heard so many stories like this where it's like, it just kind of just shows up for them. Is there anything that you would like to add anything from your experience, your, your journey that you want people to know about? Yeah, I think, you know, especially in regards to talking about psychedelics, I, I do want to add a, a, you know, a word of caution, right? It's not like, it's not for everyone. It can go wrong. It can go intense. I've had an experience working with 5-MeO-DMT um, that was so incredibly intense and so incredibly uh, overwhelming that I had to seek professional help after. And I think it's important to know that these psychedelics compounds aren't toys. They're incredibly powerful. And so I think it's really important to check the boxes of being in the right set in the right setting with the right intention and that you have a healthy history of mental illness. So no schizophrenia, no intense bipolar disorder. And um, I just want to make that note that it's, it's important that it, there is, there is caution with this. It's not there. There's risks involved for sure. Um, but I think, you know, whatever your modality is, whether it's psychedelics or not. So some people are really into, you know, yoga is the way they heal, or it's through gardening or through journaling or through being, seeing a therapist or EMDR or float tanks or, you know, whatever it may be, whatever your form of healing is, is there's a story we tell about ourselves. And it usually comes from a traumatic experience when we were a kid that stems back to a belief that we're not good enough. And when you can use these tools of healing tools in our lives to heal that story and change the narrative and send it in a new direction, you can break through into a new level of life of joy and enthusiasm and excitement and love that you didn't know was possible. And it just makes the human experience that much more deeper and meaningful and fulfilling. And so wherever you are, wherever you are in your life, do the work. You know, that's, saying, that's the purpose of the book is to encourage you to go on your journey, encourage you to explore who you truly are, because when you find, start to find those pieces of yourself, it just invites a lot of love and happiness and connection into your life. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, that was Doug Cartwright, author of Holy Shit, We're Alive. To learn more about Doug, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase his book. You can also learn more about my own personal journey in psychedelics in my three-part series in episodes 38, 39, and 40. And you can also find my social media platforms at the top of my homepage. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Take care. Take care.